I don't know whether to feel optimistic or pessimistic with a title from Scripture that starts off dealing with false teachers. But there is quite a lot in here, I think, to learn from. Well, it's been a weekend of celebration, hasn't it? If we could just have the, the PowerPoint on mic. We've um, seen all these events taking place in Westminster Abbey. We've seen the coronation of Charles III and Camilla. And some of us, we had a street party on our road last night, which was great, just to get a chance to know some of the neighbours and to celebrate with them. Now, at our leaders' meeting on Thursday night, we were reflecting how, um, with the, the coronation, with the events that have taken place in London, if you were to travel down to London this weekend, you might get a little glimpse of the king. One of our neighbours went down, and they sent this picture on WhatsApp. This was where they were stood, and this was the glimpse of the king that they got. You can see him, can't you? Yeah, just make him out in that carriage. But that was it. One moment, and he was gone. I just want to contrast that for a moment with the access we have to Jesus, who is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. In Revelation, it says these words. Revelation 19, 16. Jesus Christ, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You know, a human being can't get around everybody to talk to them. But we can know the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think what I want us to really focus on this morning is how we follow after King Jesus. How we follow after Jesus, who is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So I want us to think about a very different scene for a moment. Forget Westminster Abbey for the time being, and come with me on a journey to Tuesday night in our kitchen. (laughs) A domestic scene. I'm cooking. I'm making a pasta dish. I quite like cooking, and it smells quite good. I'm looking forward to eating it. Claire is running the vacuum round, and she's going around with this vacuum cleaner. And we both say, what's that weird smell? Is it my cooking? (laughs) Not in this instance. So Claire keeps on vacuuming. She comes into the kitchen and vacuums around the kitchen. At which point I say, Claire, I think you need to stop the smoke coming out of the vacuum cleaner. And there was, this is just for illustration purposes. This is not (laughs) quite what happened. So I said, unplug it, take it out, throw the back doors open, chuck it onto the patio. It all sounds very dramatic. It wasn't quite that dramatic. But it went out onto the patio where it cooled down before we had to throw it away. It had come to the end of its useful life. The only problem was I had to then go and buy a new vacuum cleaner. But life is full of challenges, isn't it? Life is also full of big scene events like a coronation, and then it's down to the small-scale events where problems can happen in everyday life as well. And I think in some ways, the Christian life is exactly the same. As church, we can face challenges on the biggest scale. The church through the ages has done that. But we can also face challenges in our everyday life as how we follow after Jesus. So Paul, in this letter, he's writing to Timothy. If you have got a Bible in front of you, um, do keep that passage open. If you've got it on your phone, you'll find it really useful. Um, I was down with the young people last week, and Sarah was encouraging the young people, bring a printed Bible with you to church. And if you do, you'll get a chocolate bar. Um, I don't think I could get that many chocolate bars, but at least open it on your phone so we can follow it through where we're going. It's really helpful to do that. So Paul is writing to Timothy. Timothy is an active church leader. We've heard this over the last couple of weeks. But he's also a timid man. He's not somebody who's full of confidence. And he's not somebody who finds confronting problems easy. He's somebody who would naturally shy away from dealing with conflict. Now churches, Christians, we face challenges all the time, don't we? 
We face challenges in what it means to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. I can't think of a single week as a minister where I've not had a challenge to deal with. And I've probably been a minister, what, 13 years now. That's just church life. Some of them are very small. They're even smaller than the vacuum issue. Some of them are on quite a big scale and need a lot of thought and prayer as to how to deal with them. But as we seek to follow King Jesus, we have to address the things that would pull us on one side, that would drive us one way or the other or take us off course in our journey with the Lord. And some problems that the church has faced over the centuries have been on the grand scale. They've been issues of gospel truth. Some things are on that everyday vacuum cleaner level. So here we go. This is what we're going to look at this morning from this passage. What does it mean to follow King Jesus? How can we keep in step with what Jesus calls us to do? I don't know what your default um, reaction is to problems in life. Some of us just like to avoid problems altogether. I won't ask you to put your hand up if that's you, but I would imagine for many of us, you know, conflict, problems, it just causes stress in life, and if we can deal without without it, we will do. We won't confront things. For others of us, we're actually fairly balanced. If there's a, a problem in life, if there's something of conflict, if we know we have to deal with it, we will do, but we'll sort of do it through gritted teeth. For others of us, and I know there are people who are like this, you love a problem. You love something to face. You love a challenge. You even love conflict. I don't know why, but there are people who who sort of think like that. Now, for me personally, I'm probably one of those avoidance people. I find any form of problem solving and conflict really difficult to cope with. I find it really hard work. But I've learned over the years, as a Christian, if I want to stay on track following King Jesus, there are times when I have to confront things in my life, in the life of the church, and in the lives of, of those around me. So here is Timothy, a naturally shy man, somebody who finds any form of conflict difficult, being told by Paul that there are times when you need to confront, there are times when you need to avoid, and there are times when you then need to flee from conflict. So we're going to look at this passage under three headings, avoid, confront, and flee. Can you remember those? Avoid, confront, and flee. So avoidance. We all avoid things in life. I don't know what you avoid most in life. Um, It might be those stressful situations. It might just be common everyday things. I like to avoid getting wet when I go on a dog walk. It's very simple, but I I don't like getting wet. And I will do anything to avoid getting soaked. So if it's raining when I need to take the dog out, I'll leave it till later in the day. I'll look at the weather forecast. I'll even go out with the most ridiculous umbrella over me and the dog to avoid getting wet. It's just something I avoid. I've learned that actually sometimes it's better to avoid than to solve afterwards. It's better to avoid getting wet than to solve um, your clothes being absolutely drenched. I also like to avoid getting overtired. Anyone else like to avoid getting overtired and making sure that we balance our life out so we're not totally running on empty? I also avoid preaching twice on a Sunday because I realize if I preach twice on a Sunday, all I offer is two very mediocre sermons. You probably think, well, that's all you offer anyway. (laughs) But that's something over the years that I've learned to avoid, because it's just too much. It's better to avoid it. Verse 14, Paul warns people about quarreling about words. And then in verse 16, he takes it a stage further. He says, avoid godless chatter, because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. What does he mean, and what's he calling us to walk away from, to avoid? 
Well, the key word here is godless. It's not saying avoid chatter. I like to chat. I'm sure many of us do. We like to have conversations. We like to have meaningless, inane banter and fun with each other. A lot of that is life-enhancing. We were designed by God for relationship, to communicate, to have fun. The world is not meant to be drab as a Christian. And good chatter is brilliant. Let's say we had a street party yesterday, and we were chatting to neighbors we'd not talked to before. And, you know, you're not having a deep and meaningful. You're just chatting about the stuff of life and what it's like to live on our road and all those kind of things. Life without communication is actually a pretty miserable life. So Paul is not saying to Timothy, avoid chatter. He's not saying avoid having fun. He's not saying any of those things. Claire was reading something the other day. And I think, what was it about, Claire? About communication or something or other? Yeah. And she sent me this quote on WhatsApp. And it said, don't speak unless what you have to say is better than the silence. (laughs) Just think about that for the moment. Don't speak unless what you have to say is better than the silence. I don't think I'd ever speak at all if that was true. You know, silence is a beautiful gift of God, isn't it? Sometimes just to sit in the silence and to be able to hear the voice and the whisperings of the Spirit is beautiful. But we sometimes fill it with with chatter. That's okay. But sometimes we fill it with dangerous stuff. And I think that is actually what that quote is getting at. Sometimes we can fill the silence with things that actually bring us down and bring other people down. Because chatter can be godly, it can be neutral, but it can also be hugely damaging if it descends into godlessness. So what is godlessness? Well, it's something where God is not, isn't it? That's what the definition of godless is. It's where God is not present. So if I'm talking and I start to use words that hurt, that belittle, that abuse, that talk down, that cause temptation, that cause suspicion, that undermine friendships, that call others' names, that lack love and bring hatred, I'm descending into godlessness. It can actually be quite hard to define what Paul is on about here. And it's interesting, what Paul doesn't do is say, here's now a checklist of things you shouldn't be talking about. He's not calling us to descend into some kind of legalism. But he's talking us to think very carefully about the words that we use and the power that those words have to either keep us on track with following King Jesus, or to pull us to one side. Words can be powerful, can't they? Words can be powerful to to lift us up. Did everyone get one of those encouragements this morning? Just look at that for the moment. Did everyone get one as you came in? Those words hopefully will encourage you. Does anyone want to read theirs out? He watches over you each day. Encouraging words. Anyone else? Jesus loves you and knows you. Perhaps one more. Go on, let's go for Phil Lembar. Go on, Phil. You are fearfully and wonderfully made, Bob. Thank you for being part of our church. All wonderfully encouraging words. Just think how our conversations would change if we suddenly became aware of the presence of God. Do you remember those bracelets the teenagers used to wear that said, What would Jesus do on them? How would our conversation change if Jesus was present? Or if we suddenly thought, how would Jesus deal with this situation? You see, chatter can build up. Words can enhance life, but they can also destroy us. So Paul says, avoid godless chatter. Avoid those things which would bring us down and deny who we are in Christ. Avoid chatter and words that lack God. 
Now, to avoid, it means actually keep yourself away from those situations where that kind of stuff can just perpetuate. And he talks about how it just goes down into this godless spiral and you get more and more godless. So how do we avoid? How do we avoid those situations? Well, if you're avoiding something, you probably don't go near them in the first place, do you? You have to think, well, where am I likely to get in those kind of conversations that will either bring me down or bring other people down? Now, it'll be different for each of us, but I'll just leave that with you. What does it mean in our lives to avoid godless chatter? Second thing, confrontation. This word actually isn't in the passage, but what Paul does do is talk about confronting some of the big problems in the life of the church. Now, as the church passed from generation to generation, from the apostles to the next generation of Christian leaders, um, it became vulnerable to false teaching coming in because you had lost that direct link to Jesus. And so over those centuries, um, say the, the end of the first century, second, third century, there was a risk that false teaching could rise up within the church. If you're here last week, John was talking about how often passing the gospel on is like a relay race. The one generation takes it from the next and passes it on. Now, Paul will often talk about how life is like a race. Anyone into racing, like watching athletics or those kind of things? Um, But I'm sure we all know what a racetrack looks like where people have to run along it and you have to keep within your lines. Now, sometimes the gospel is passed from generation to generation and it just keeps going straight. Praise God for that. Other times it goes from generation to generation and the next generation goes a little bit off. And then a few generations down, it's, it's gone quite a long way off. Other times, somebody comes along, grabs the gospel and doesn't just get off the lane, they actually go and run out of the stadium with it and do something totally ridiculous. This is what is happening in this passage. These two people, Hymenaeus and Philetus, I'm going to call them H and P after this point, um, they are teaching something that is spreading like gangrene. Gangrene is not an infection you want to get. If you get gangrene and it's untreated, I think you've got about 48 hours to live. It just eats away at you and kills you. And even with treatment, any tissues that have got gangrene in are already dead and need to be chopped out. So what Paul is talking about is a teaching so toxic that it is killing the faith of some has entered into the life of the church. Something so destroying. Now we use a bit of an unpleasant sounding word as, as sort of in theological, theological sort of circles to explain teaching that is really off beam and it's the word heresy. It's not a nice sounding word. But I read a book a few years ago that was called The Cruelty of Heresy. How if you start teaching stuff that leads people away from Jesus, it's not interesting, it's just cruel. Because it's actually taking people away from the Lord who loves them and saves them. And actually this is what is going on here. There is a cruelty in what these two people, H and P, are doing. They are leading people away from Jesus. So what are they teaching? Well in verse 18, they're teaching that the resurrection has already taken place. Now you might think, So what? Yeah, it has. Jesus rose from the dead on Easter Day. We know that. It happened in time and space. We know that. So surely that's good teaching. Surely that's what the Bible teaches. But actually, they were peddling something far more dangerous than just talking about the historical resurrection. And it was a teaching that later became known as Gnosticism. And what they were teaching was that actually the physical body is so sinful that it's useless. So you can basically do whatever you like with the physical body. Because the spiritual body, the spiritual soul of a person, has already been resurrected. 
So as Jesus comes out of the tomb, anyone who is in Christ is then resurrected spiritually, but forget physical resurrection. And this caused absolute havoc in the life of the church. In the decades that followed, people started basically thinking, well, I can just do whatever I want then, can't I? Whatever sin I commit with my body doesn't matter because the body is evil. So people then started taking this to logical ends. And it was things like abusive relationships were taking place, sexual promiscuity, physical problems, excesses of all kinds crept into the life of the church. And actually it just destroyed people's faith. And over the centuries, that sort of wing of the church got into very, very strange things and eventually died out. It destroyed the faith. Now, actually, this is not a minor doctrinal issue, is it? Something so toxic as that, you can't say, well, let's sit down over a coffee and just agree to disagree. You have to confront it. You have to stand firm. And you have to say, this is so toxic that it will destroy faith in Jesus. Compare this with what Paul teaches. Just look at these wonderful verses from 1 Corinthians about our resurrection. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. There is hope in what Paul teaches. He teaches that actually we are loved by God in the physical as we are, and that our physical bodies do count. That we should offer our bodies as a spiritual act of worship. That we should stay away from anything that is sinful. That we should die to sin and be raised with Christ. And that one day we will physically rise and be with him in the new heaven and the new earth for all eternity. So Paul writes, verse 19, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription. The Lord knows who are his. And so what Timothy must do is he must stand firm in proclaiming the gospel. He needs to stand firm in teaching what is actually true, what has been passed on from Paul. He needs to push back against the gangrene. Otherwise, the gangrene will overrun the church and the church will die. Now, my um, granddad lost his leg in the trenches of the First World War. And he lost it because gangrene would have taken him. But he had this, this surgery to chop the leg off and he lived another 50 years. It was brutal, but it saved him. And so this is the kind of thing that Paul has in his sights here. Deal with this problem. Confront the problem. Don't let these people destroy the faith. What about us 2,000 years later? We, we don't have Gnostics and Gnosticism floating around the church, particularly at the moment. This is not our problem. But 20 centuries later, there have been a load of problems that the church has faced. Whether it was in the Middle Ages, when all these kind of things about superstitions and rules and regulations and dogma came in, whether it was in the 19th century where there was a, a liberal agenda in, in theology that seek to deny the historical Jesus, whether it's the cults that come into the church seemingly with horrendous regularity, and even today that would take people away from the truth of Jesus. Each of those things has the potential to destroy faith. Each of those things has the potential to actually rob people of the joy they have in Christ. And we have to be on our guard. We have to be on our guard against anything that would destroy the heart of the gospel. Now, not everything is the main thing. Not everything is the heart of the gospel. And there are loads of issues in the life of the church where it is okay to have a discussion over a coffee, to disagree well, and all those things. 
But if it gets down to the fundamentals of who Jesus is, the incarnation, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus, the second coming, all these other points that are central to our faith, then actually what Paul is saying is you can't just have different viewpoints, but you've got to stand firm on what has been passed on to you. You've got to stand firm. So what is Paul's remedy? What does he say the church should do about it? What should Timothy do about it? Well, we probably think of confrontation as something aggressive, don't we? As something where you go in guns blazing and shout people down. Totally the opposite. What Paul talks about is something very different. Look at verses 24 and 25. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach and not resentful. And this bit. Opponents must be gently instructed. I love that. Gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. See, there's absolutely nothing, Paul will say, that is a benefit in going in, shouting at somebody who believes the wrong thing. It will not lead them back to Jesus. You can't defend doctrine by denying loving your neighbor as yourself. Totally makes no sense whatsoever. But instead, gently instruct those who have gone astray. Now, in a sense, this is um, really one of those bits of the passage that is for those in teaching ministries. It's for church leadership. But it is also a whole church job. You see, if I say anything, and you're sat there thinking, hold on a minute, Jonathan, you're, you're, you're running off beam here. You need to come and tell me. If any of our other preachers are doing the same thing, we need to tell one another. We need to defend the heart of the gospel really powerfully. Is it an easy call? Absolutely not. But Paul says this is essential because gangrene can quickly get a hold and before you know it, faith is destroyed. So let's encourage one another to stand firm on the truths of the gospel. Final one, flee. Verse 22, flee the evil desires of youth. Running away sounds a bit like cowardice, doesn't it? I don't know if you like the thought of being a sort of muscular, confrontational type of person. You know, Penny Mordant with that sword yesterday, you know, holding it there for hours and hours, just looking really strong. Is that the kind of Christian you feel yourself wanting to be? Well, fleeing doesn't sound like that, does it? Fleeing sounds like, oh, hold on a minute, I've just got to run away from something. But sometimes fleeing is the right thing. Sometimes fleeing a situation is the best option. So why does Paul say, flee from the evil desires of youth? What's he talking about? It could be tempting to think, well, he's talking about you know, sexual temptation or those kind of things that seem to be more prevalent in youth. But actually, he's talking about something that for the readers of the day, they would have known what he meant. I don't know if you think how odd culture is and how odd our language is. And sometimes if I say things... You get it because we live in the same culture. But somebody 200 years down the line wouldn't understand what I mean. If I say I'd give my back teeth for a new phone, what do I mean? I really want a new phone. I'm not literally going to remove my back teeth and go to the Apple shop and say, would you take these for a new phone? But a couple of centuries down the line, people might be thinking there was this really odd bartering scheme in the, you know, where people were, were, were removing teeth in exchange for things. If I say it's balmy outside, what do I mean? Hot, warm, yeah. I don't mean that everyone's going around being balmy in the other sense of the word. And again, the cultural context, we get it, we understand. So actually, when the evil desires of youth is mentioned, this is the kind of thing, this is a, a commentator on this passage, that um, Paul would have in mind. 
So this writer says, flee from those passions that plague the special energies and capacities of young people. And then a list of words that just seem to get longer and longer. Impatience, love of novelty, ambition, rebelliousness, conceit, dogmatism, um, contentiousness, egocentricity, making oneself the centre of attention. So at this point of time, youth was viewed as the self-centred part of life. Remember how we talked about a couple of weeks ago, how in Roman times, Greek times, actually life was divided into two halves. The first half of life, this is what people expected. Second half, you'd probably matured a bit, and some of these things you might be able to put on one side. But I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I think we can all live with those kind of things going on, these evil desires of youth. So why are we to flee it? Why are we not to confront it, and why are we not to avoid it? Well, sometimes fleeing is actually the best option. A few years ago, I was walking the dog one evening, and I was going through a field, and there were cows in this field. And um, I happened to look round, and I found out that these cows were running, not walking, but running at me and the dog. Now, at those moments, the logical answers of, well, cows, you know, if you stand up to them, make yourself big, I think, do we look six times bigger to a cow than we are, something like that? You know, all those logical arguments went straight out of the window. The cows were running, and even if there was a 1% chance that those logical arguments weren't true, that was enough. I was going to run, as was the dog. So we ran, and there were two options of where to run to. There was a river on the right-hand side, quite a big river, probably the depth of this sort of stand. You know what I said about wanting to get, not wanting to get wet walking the dog? That royally wasn't an option. I wasn't going into the water. So I ran forward at high speed, hopped over the wall, as did the dog, just in time. Fleeing had worked. We had not got trampled by a herd of cows. But you know what also matters? There is no point in fleeing if you don't know what you're fleeing to. If I just ran round in circles, even with a border collie, um, she might have rounded the cows up eventually, but you know, it would have just been chaos. We would have probably got trampled down. I had to know where I was heading. Paul doesn't say flee to nothing. He says run away from this, but run to righteousness, faith, love, and peace, and a pure heart. Fill the void of self-centeredness with the fruits of the Spirit. Do that about turn. Make a difference in where you're heading. Don't just flee to nothing. But you see, sometimes in life, there can be desires that can be so toxic that just emerge in our hearts that would have the ability to derail our ability to follow Jesus effectively, that the only thing to do is to flee. We might not have the strength to confront them. We might not just be able to avoid them. And we just literally have to make a dash for it. But you make a dash into the fruits of the Spirit. You say, God, would you help me and fill this void with love and peace and righteousness and all these other things? Fleeing is actually not easy. It wasn't that easy to run at that speed to escape those cows. It took quite a lot of effort. But I made it. You know, sometimes if we're facing temptations in life, To flee is actually quite hard. Sometimes it's much easier just to give in and sit where you are. But to flee and say, actually, I'm not going to be pulled by this. And in verse 26, to escape from the trap of the devil who prowls around looking for somebody to devour. So don't flee blindly, but fill the space with the fruits of the Spirit. Seek the transformation of Jesus. Three things, can you remember what they are? Avoid, confront, and flee. Now, it's my prayer, really, this morning, that in our lives, I mean, these are examples that Paul gives, but there are all kinds of different areas in life where we may need to avoid things, 
where we may need to confront things and where actually fleeing is the option. But the most important question is, do we want to keep on track with following King Jesus? Do we want to keep on track following him? I'm just going to leave those three words up on the screen for a moment. Are there any areas in your life, in my life today, when I need to do one of those three things, or perhaps all of those three things, in order to be an effective disciple of Jesus? Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, I just thank you that you call us to follow you. We thank you that following you is the best life. The holiness is the best way of living. That being a follower of you is life in all its fullness, life free from those evil desires that would take us. I just want to pray for each of us today that you will help us to stand firm in our hope in the gospel of Jesus. Help us whenever we need to, to to either avoid, confront, or flee, depending on what it is. And Lord, give us the wisdom today, we pray, to know what to do when we face false things that would pull us away from you. So just leave a a moment of quiet. Um, It may be that the Holy Spirit is stirring something in you. You just need to to ask for God's guidance in that area. So just a, a few moments of quiet. Lord Jesus, keep us faithful to you, we pray. Thank you that you are the sovereign King of kings and Lord of lords. That you are worthy of all our worship and praise. So by your spirit, keep us on track, we pray. Amen.